I um, begin with, I probably should get a horse whipping for the title of the shear. Um, it's kind of like a chutzpah to give a title, so type a title to a shear. Um, I'll start with a, a story that I happen to know happened. I usually am careful. I mean, any you know, the rule of anecdotal material is if it goes back more than a generation, you can get away any way you want to say it, right? You can always say it over. But if it's more recent than that, you know, you should try to verify it. So I have another story. I have the story from a cliche, which is pretty good. I heard from Chaim Mintz, who was there when it happened. Chaim Mintz from Staten Island. So a number of, a number of years ago, uh, there was a, in Eretz Yisrael, I think it was, there was a calf, female calf born that was all red. So people start tumbling, you know, maybe it's a, maybe it's a paraduma, whatever. The truth is that it's not such a novel thing. It's just a side point that um, there, are, there are breeds of cattle that are red, uh, particularly in Scotland, has several breeds of cattle, or as they would say it in Scotland. They have several breeds of cattle that are red, and as a matter of fact, somebody, since that time, in Eretz Israel, it's like, uh, it's a type of big, he, he is breeding um, red cattle, specifically so that he will have uh, female calves that have never been worked that can be used for the paraduma. It's a top secret thing, and in other words, if you think the Shin Bet is top secret, this guy's thing is top secret. It's, he keeps a total top secret where his operation is. The assumption is it's somewhere in the Golan, but he has somewhere going on this operation in which he keeps a top secret. He doesn't want anybody to know, he doesn't want anybody to come in and start potching around with his calves. So best way to do it is he doesn't tell anybody know about it. And you have to, like, it's only Mayachoria Parga that I found out about this, this fellow's operation. But going back to the story, so there was a, um, a calf born, female calf born, all red. So, okay, looks like it's not so good. And, you know, maybe this is the Paraduma. So Chaim Mintz, I heard the story from, he was there when somebody came to tell Reb about this red calf being born. And Reb did react. No reaction. So the person who made him, does a shiva think that this might be a simon, that you know, we'll have a Paraduma, so Mashiach can come. Tar. What are you talking about? The paraduma is not kosher until it's three, three years old. I don't doubt of Mashiach to come in three years. All right. So, you know. so that was the uh, Rav Moshe's idea on what Tzipisli Yeshua is. You daven that you were hoping Mashiach comes today, right? Not not two years from now. I mean, what type of big deal? So two years from now, I, mean, I don't want to wait two years. Anyway, that was that was you know Rav Moshe's thing. I mean. That's the first reason why I should be horsewhipped, perhaps, for saying 20 years. The second reason is, of course, the Rambam and others, the Gemara itself says it too, the Gemara says, that to um, try to make a cheshman when Mashiach is coming, right, is not good. You shouldn't do it. You shouldn't spend time on it. Notwithstanding that fact that numerous G'dayli Yisrael made cheshbonus to try to figure out when Mashiach was coming. The Ramban makes the cheshbonus. Many others do. They make cheshbonus when they think Mashiach is going to come. Uh, the truth is that it almost always ends up with a dismal response. Whenever that happens, it's not good in, in response. So I give that as a hakdama, right, to the uh, to, to, to some of my thoughts on the subject. But that's, that's background. A little bit of background on it. So, uh, I'm going to start out with a question. Uh, in a few weeks, we'll be in Parshas Vaera. And first mock is Makas Dam. So in this oil, if I ask you why Makas Dam was brought, 
I'm sure we'll get the correct answer. But if you go to the world, everybody knows about Makkah's Dam. Uh, by now, the Christian world knows about it because they've uh, borrowed our Bible, our Tachumish. The Muslim world knows about it because the Quran quotes almost every major important story in Tanakh, or important, all stories are important. Major story in Tanakh is quoted in the Quran somewhere. Um, I've checked. Uh, so the um, so they all know about Makastan. Everybody knows about Makastan. But if you have, why did, was Makastan brought? So the standard answer people will give you: Why was Makastan brought? Not what a, not what a Talmud Chacham is going to answer, but a Balabatish person. Why is he going to say why the Bereshit brought Makastan on Mitzrayim? So to get the Jews out of Egypt. Right? That's what he's going to say. To get the Jews out of Egypt. Of course, you can prove him immediately that it's wrong, because Rebbeinu gave him a forewarning that Makastan was going to come came for a week, and he stopped. Now, the country can't survive with its water source cut off. Okay, I mean, uh, so so in order to get the Yudzah out of Mitzrayim, if Makazdam was the reason why the Rosh wanted to have the method of the Rosh getting eaten out of Mitzrayim, right, he just had to never release the Dom. Why, why give up after a week? No forewarning, he was going to say, stop for a week, and then after a week, hold on, just wait after a week, keep it going, Makazdam will keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. Again, chance the Egyptians are going to let the Jews go. It's only a question of how long, at what point they will. But if they realize that this mock is not going away until they let the Jews go, they're going to let the Jews go. Whether the Jews are the Matsuma are going to get the Jews go because Paru is going to realize that he's going to lose his throne otherwise, or because he actually loses his throne because of it. But eventually, they're going to let the Jews go. Okay, so that's Pashat. So we know that the reason why Makas Dam was to show Ani Hashem, and the purpose of the Asimakas was Ani Hashem. Right, we know that, okay, and we can actually prove it from Makasdam that Makasdam was not just a means of getting the Mitzrayim hidden out of Mitzrayim. Makasdam was a Ani Hashem. Right? That was its purpose. Was Ani Hashem. Okay, that's a, a, a given. Okay, uh, the comparison I want to draw between Makasdam. I want to draw a comparison between Makas Dam and the Corona pandemic. Okay, and maybe it sounds a little extreme, but let me explain to you a couple of points here that I have that are that are interesting about the Corona. I'm going to start out with the, shall I say, the chesed of the Corona pandemic. Okay, now I preface my comments by saying that I apologize to anyone who lost a close relative in the Corona pandemic because what I'm going to say is going to sound callous. I lost, I mean, I've known family members, but I know a lot of Choshevi, a lot of people that I knew well, that that had a neighbor across the street, and uh, some very good early Israel that I was close to. So, uh, but but um, if we want to be very, very almost callous about, uh, if we want to be almost callous about, about it, we can look at it this way. Um, we have a new circumstance in our generation of people living I mean when I was a kid somebody who lived to 90 years old was conversation for the tiny room table okay um, you can't even get a news you know one of these news brief items for somebody happy birthday to someone on their 100th birthday anymore because they're so common right people live to 105 110 even I mean certainly people living into the 80s is nothing unusual now living into the 90s is nothing unusual anymore and COVID predominantly, not exclusively, obviously, but predominantly uh, attacked seriously people who, in a different generation, 
would have been gone uh, anyway. Okay, number one. Number two, more important, um, the, the current uh, medical staff, the people that are um, the people who are trained in dealing with pandemics, like uh, I don't know if the guy's name is Fauci, is that how it's pronounced? Mm-hmm. Fauci. Fauci. And uh, the people in Eretz Yisrael, I mean, the, the, the people who have, are, are experts in pandemic diseases, okay, all the, this, the, 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 where did they get their training from in pandemic diseases? They didn't get it in the Spanish flu epidemic, which was the real previous, which was over 100 years, about 100, uh, over 100 years ago, over 100 years ago. Now, they, I don't want to use a physician who was treating medicine or try getting training 100 years ago. So that's not me. I mean, maybe you want to, for me, I, I don't want to use a physician that got training 100 years ago. So it wasn't the Spanish flu epidemic. Where did they get their training? Do I know? Africa. AIDS. They got all their training in AIDS. Okay, AIDS was considered the previous pandemic. They all, got, all of them got their training in AIDS. Okay, now we're not going to go into a comparison between this and AIDS, but I want to point out something. Um, how long did it take for, AIDS is also a virus. How long did it take to develop a, a, a um, vaccine to AIDS? There isn't any. Okay, it, their, their medical knowledge has been unable to produce a vaccine for AIDS uh, because of the nature of the, uh, the, the virus that it is. There is nothing in medical know-how that has been able to produce a vaccine for AIDS. Okay, the medical know-how for dealing with a vaccine against a corona-type uh, virus was developed about 15 years ago. I think it's about 17 years ago. It's approximately that. It was something in that range. I don't have the exact date on me. But it's clearly HaKadosh Baruch being Makdim, okay, Rafua, right, Lamaka. 15 years ago, this scientific knowledge was developed to do it such that, right, not only was there a developed vaccine, there are nine vaccines out there. Now, some of them are questionable about, you know, steps that I may have taken, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But there are nine workable vaccines that have, are, are good for some some degree, okay? And basically, um, somebody I spoke to who's in the know said that the countries that are complaining about not getting access to the vaccine are really, his, his argument, which I'm, not, I'm just repeating what he said, was that he felt that, you know, they're really, um, what was his point? He was saying that if they would spend more time on medical research, they would all have been able to develop a vaccine because there's nothing hidden, right? All the information is out there. And if you just devoted time and money towards having a research facility in your own country, he said that virtually every country of the world could have developed a vaccine with the know-how that's out there. Okay? It's, um, you know, so, so it's, it's, you know, if instead of, you know, ba- ba- you know, basing yourself on somebody else's thing and then complaining that you couldn't get access to it, you would have devoted research to doing it, you would have done it. That's a side point. The point I want to bring out is that the coronavirus itself was relatively mild in terms of, let's compare it to, let's say, the Spanish flu epidemic, which was also misnomer. It wasn't Spanish flu, it wouldn't start in Spain, but it's quite, everybody calls it Spanish flu epidemic. Spanish flu epidemic, which was started around probably 1917 in the uh, foxholes of uh, of the of, of the World War One, and spread pretty much around the world, probably killed 50 million people. Okay, it's unknow- it's hard to know because a lot of these figures were kept top secret by different countries because of their how many military they didn't want people to know how many of their soldiers were sick, uh, and then data wasn't explained. It probably killed 50 million people. Now the population of the world a century ago 
was a fraction of what it is today. So do a little statistical figuring, and you'll realize that the coronavirus and the Spanish flu, by the way, killed mostly men in their 20s and 30s. That was its biggest heavy, 20s, 30s, 40s. Two of my, two of my great-grandfathers uh, died in the Spanish flu epidemic. So um, it was, and they were both, both young men at the time, young men in their 40s. Uh, so it was a much, uh, much more potent virus, okay? It was, uh, it killed a much larger number of people, much younger population, okay? And, uh, and never got a, and, 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 and never had a, um, a vaccine, right, to defend against it. So I call this, that's why I refer to Corona as the Rabbanish Lomus equivalent of Makastam. In other words, he sent it to us. He's trying to wake people up, the whole world. Talk about that in a second. Very large, bold statement. I mean, very straightforward statement of the British Islam to the world, right? But just a potch. You know, some people was a harder potch, but to the population in general, it was a potch that he then, you know, said, okay, now I'll give you a vaccine. So now we can all sit here in this room, almost all of us. I'm not, I'm not faulting any of those who are masked. But I'm saying I was vaccinated three times. My doctor told me after the third vaccine, it was a possibility of I going to speak in London and in Mexico. And he, he told me I could, and neither one worked out, but he told me, don't worry about it, you can go, you've got your third vaccine already, you're in good health. You know, notwithstanding the fact that uh, I'm closer to 70 than I am to 60, let's put it that way. Um, but he said that my, you know, that I, that I could go to any of these places and I wouldn't have to worry about it. Um, and so, you know, so I sometimes, when I'm in crowds, I usually do wear a mask, but it's harder to speak to the crowd that, you're not, that you don't know that well with, with a mask on. So he told me it's okay, my doctor, so I guess uh, I can rely on him with Kula. Okay, so, so background is that this was a um, hard potch, but it was a potch, like Makasdam. It was to wake people up. Uh, I'm going to then point out a couple of other interesting things. I want you all to think the cons- the, 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 how many in the, in the world as we know it today can you think of any place in the world where they don't know anything about the coronavirus? You can? Yeah. Where? Well, the island of India. Sorry? The island of India where you don't have access to. Okay. I'm just saying, you know, uh, the Inuit know about it. Okay, Inuit is, you know, the Inuit, that's the Eskimos. Yeah, yeah, they know about it also. Um, the, um, the hunter-gatherer peoples in the Namibian desert, right, know about it. Okay, there's some populations in the Amazon that have not been exposed to mankind as of yet, and they don't know about. But basically, in other words, this is, let's put it very, very specifically, this is a direct conversation between the Rabbinic Shalom and the world, the whole world. Not an indirect conversation, okay? Uh, splitting the Yamsuf was an indirect conversation to the rest of the world. Happened to us, the Egyptians were there, right? Egypt had a direct conversation. The rest of the world found out about it eventually through, through Tanakh, through the uh, Koran, whatever it might be. So it's indirect conversation to most of the world, not the whole world. But co- Corona, you know, with everything you're doing, you know, I'm telling you, I have a, you know, Bria Kali Yeshli Bolami. Right? You can't even get an electron microscope to take a picture of it. You can only get an, an, an idea of what it looks like. Uh, and so it's Briakala, right? Shane Komohu, in Komoha. 
And Sarbush was talking directly, directly to the entire, entire world. When was the last time he did that? Think back. When was the last time the Rosh, huh? Somebody say something? When was the last time the Rosh talked to the entire world directly? Think back. Directly, not indirectly. World War II was indirectly. World War One was indirectly. Okay. Sorry? <laughs> the Spanish flu. No. I don't think so because because he didn't, didn't get everywhere in the world. Maybe did not get there. are parts of the world that the Spanish flu didn't spread to. Okay, it didn't spread everywhere in the world. It spread through Europe. It spread through Asia. I don't think it spread through Latin America, if I'm not mistaken, not extensively. Africa, I don't think it got spread through. A lot of parts of the world didn't spread to. Okay, so that's why I think this was more extensive than the Spanish. So let's go back. Huh? Only in Europe. Harsina was indirect. Hey, didn't he speak to all the nations directly? Well, he went to each nation according to the Medrash. Okay, you could you could you could tie in his Harsinai. I think I, I would disagree with you, but you can tie in a Harsinai. Still a long time ago. I tie in it to Dor HaFloga. Would you? Would, would Americans or Chutznik refer to it as Dor HaFloga? In Eretz Israel, they refer to it as Dor HaPelaga, which is grammatically more correct, but we'll call it Dor HaFloga for our purposes. Okay, Dor HaFloga Medrash spoke to everybody. Okay. A long time ago, folks. Okay, he. In other words, the Rebbeinu has not felt it necessary to speak to the entire world directly since the Dor HaFloga. That means something special is going on. Okay, something very, very special is going on in communication between the Rebbeinu and the world that he feels that he has to talk to the world directly. Okay, that's that's piece of piece of information, observation, simply an observation. Okay, an observation away. That, that, that the Rebbeinu fails here, he had to talk to us all directly. Okay, now, so we have piece of information number one, that he talked to the entire world directly. Piece of information number two, that my comparison to Makas Dam you may not like, maybe I'm a little bit too being callous about it, but I don't think I am. I think it's just in terms of the gravity with which the way the Rebbeinu can talk to the world, right? He's got much harder weapons that he could talk to, for sure. Than, than this, and it's, everybody in the world has been woken up to it, it's made major changes, economic changes, social changes, educational changes, all sorts of things have changed in the world because of it, but most of that is what man did, right? The Rebbeinu just got the message out, right? The question is, did the message get out, or did a mis-message get out? Or did a message that wasn't understood get out? And the answer is, a message that was not properly understood got out basically what's, what happened. And I'll just give you two comparisons. First one is from Novi. We're very familiar with the fact that Yona comes to the city of Ninveh. He walks into the city, Rishon tells him, okay, go to the city of Ninveh, tell them that in 30 days the city of Ninveh is going to be destroyed, overturned. That's the Lashon of the Pasuk. And Melech Ninveh takes action. Okay. The action is, folks, we got to do tshuva. Was the stimulus check? Sorry? It wasn't stimulus check? No, it doesn't say anything in the puzzle about any stimulus checks. Isn't that interesting? No stimulus checks, right? Right. No debate over, you know, the, the Democrats or Republicans or left liberals or conservatives or livelihood versus lives. None, <laughs> none of those arguments going on. Um, it was, you know, do tshuva, folks. Okay, now. 
you don't have to go back to the Melech Ninveh to have a political leader who understood that the Rebbe was being mochiach his people. Find a non-Jewish leader who was mochiach his people for what the, what, what they did. And I'm thinking of some something that happened much more recently than Melech Ninveh. And was a non-Jewish leader who gave tochacha to his people. Anybody know what I'm referring to? Abraham Lincoln, second inaugural address. Okay, Abraham Lincoln. Everybody, the second inaugural address of Lincoln. Of course, Lincoln was dead a few weeks later, but that wasn't part of the inaugural address. Uh, Lincoln. Everybody came assumed that the inaugural address would deal with the question about. Uh, what to do. the war was almost over, the South was crumbling, it had already, the South had already been decided, divided into three different sections that were not contiguous to one another, couldn't get to one another because of the Union uh, armies that had taken down the entire Mississippi and gone through Georgia already. So the Confederacy had been divided into three parts, right, and it was basically a classic case of divide and conquer and only a question of time and everybody realized that by that time even Lee realized that the war was lost. Um, so everybody's assuming the war's over, and the question's going to be what's going to be with reconstruction of the South, which was a major hotbed issue, what to do with the South. Now we're going to take the South's going to become forced back into the Union under what terms. Everybody was interested in knowing what Lincoln's position was going to be on reconstruction. They assumed that his second inaugural address would deal with what his plans were for reconstructing the South. Didn't say a word about it. Not a word. What did he talk about? He talked about the futility of the prayers that the, the North and the South had been praying to the same God for opposite things, and God couldn't answer both. Interesting, right? He says it. Pamole, right? The North was praying, the South was praying, we're all praying to the same God. The North's prayers were for one thing, the South's prayers were for another, right? And one God can't answer if those both prayers in the affirmative. That's his first step position. His second position is that the horrible uh, uh, results of the Civil War with the major amount of bloodshed was, in his opinion, due to the fact right, that the South was practicing slavery and the North was benefiting from slavery. He says it primarily. Now, whether you agree with Lincoln or not is not my point. Okay, The point is that Lincoln took it upon himself the role of the Mochiach, he saw that as a political ruler, right, his responsibility was to be mochiach, his people. And he took the second inaugural address as an opportunity to mochiach the entire people, right, for what he felt was tochacha that they needed. Okay? I'm just pointing out that could you imagine uh, Boris Johnson or Macron or uh, Putin or... But Joe Biden or for Donald Trump, you know, and we can go through the list. We all know who they are, right? Of the various and sundry uh, political leaders that we have, or political clowns that we have around the world, right? Can you imagine any one of them, you know, being mochiach his people for, you know, like Rabbi you know why this corona thing has happened? You know why the economies are in such a difficult situation? Everything else, it's because. We need to do tshuva. Now, I don't know what they would tell people to do tshuva on. That's another next question, right? But have you heard anybody say it? Would you be shocked out of your wits if anybody said it? 
It would be, you know, it would be, the politician would do it, would be a complete total laughingstock. Complete and total laughingstock, right? And I think we all would agree with it, right? That no politician would dare dream of such a thing, right? Yet Lincoln goes down in history as perhaps many consider him the greatest American president that ever lived. I have my differing opinion on that, but that's a different question. But, but the, um, uh, but Lincoln is considered one of the greatest, everybody puts him in the top two, three, four presidents as greatest president of the United States, whether they put him in the top one or not. Well, there's some people that aren't listening to the Holocaust because they're stacking down and thinking he ain't nothing. Who, Lincoln? They were people that wouldn't listen to the Holocaust. Yeah. Nowadays, they're taking their names off high school and stacking them. Okay. <laughs> But 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 my point is, I think you know, well taken here that the that the world has gone completely away from this. Okay, now that we have one last step. Okay, which is incredibly the uh, it's a Gemara, and it's more so in a it's in a Sefra. Sefra talks about the Gemara amplifies an aspect of it, but the Sefra is in Parshas Achrimos, where the Sefra says. That you know, we we should be like the Knanim or the Mitzvah, <laughs> and and then the Sefer goes to the Haparshas Arayas, including specifically, right? Okay, what we would call in our uh, modern world uh, lesbian and gay relationships. Okay, and that's specifically mentioned bestial relationships. There's four things mentioned in the Sefer there. Men marrying men, women marrying women, people marrying animals, and two women, excuse me, two men marrying the same woman. Okay, those are the four examples picked in the Medrash of the Sifra. Now, the Gemara, when it talks about this idea, says that the Yom Ha'ilam, the one thing that they never have done, as the Gemara says, is that they were not kaisen ksuba for two men. Now, Baisa, we've beaten it, right? We collectively in the world, okay? We've gone below the level where the Gemara says, right, that mankind will never seek that low, right? People are kaisen ksuba on it. We'll create a formal marriage situation. That's what it means, right? We've gone below that madrega, right? Which, which, which in... Uh, Chazal said, right, that the Umas Olam will probably never, you know, th- th- this is like as low as they can stoop. This is with, with low, okay? And the only thing that in the, from the Sifra that you see that they haven't done yet is that they have, although there have been instances of even Reformed rabbis carrying out marriage ceremonies between people and their pets, but um, it's not count- common, it's not standard, it's not accepted. It's, you still cannot take a U.S. tax deduction as a, uh, a couple for your pet as being your marital, you know, you just can't do it yet. It doesn't work. It, it, it hasn't yet happened that the Supreme Court has ruled that that's acceptable. Okay. How long will that be? Well, that might be the answer to our question. Okay. Because, right, you know, Chazal say that, you know, when will Mashiach come? The Yom HaShanah. Right, he, come, he can come right away, right? Or he can take a while. If you want him to come, he'll come right away. You don't want him to come, right? He'll, he'll take a while. On the other hand, it also says, 
Right, so on the side of the Dor Shakula Zakai, you have, look at Rabbi Hanan Vasserman in the Kvisa de Mashiach, things that he quotes there, and I found the same thing in a few other Svarim offhand. I'm trying to remember who it was. I found it in several other major, major people that we accepted the last hundred years or more. In a door where everything is Meshuga, a Yid who's basically Shomer Torah Mitzvahs, right, is considered, you know, Mekadeshem Shemayim L'chol Dover. That's the Dor Shekula Zakai, right? Because the world's gone nuts. And in the case of the world's gone nuts, and now you have a Dor Shekula Zakai. So we could be Zaycha on the basis of being a Dor Shekula Zakai. We could also possibly be Zaycha on the basis of a Dor Shekula Chayev based on where we see what, what Chazal are telling us as far as things go. Okay, so we, we have the option of a door Shekula Zakai, we have an option of a door Shekula Chayev. We hope it's because it's a door Shekula Zakai, because that's a much easier, much more pleasant way for Mashiach to come than a door Shekula Chayev, because door Shekula Chayev means that the Rebbe is going to create a Malchus that is so difficult that everybody will have no choice but to do Tshuva, because in our world you have to imagine how badly that's got to be. You know, we, we, what we've seen hasn't doesn't jar people to even open their mouths about doing tshuva. Can you imagine what they would have take to get people to the, that point? So these are two uh, possibilities that I see both of them staring us. Okay. So according to all of this, you have one question on me on what you know on what I wrote on the title. Twenty years. Very good, Rochese. Right? Why did I say 20 years? Okay? That's a good question. It's a very good question. But I'm the one who said 20 years. I, I, I will admit that I'm the one who offered the, the, the said 20 years. So the 20 years is a different cheshman. Okay? And it's, it's based on the following. I don't like to be the one who is foretelling when Mashiach comes. Or, the Gemara says it's not a good idea. I don't want to be against the Gemara. I don't want to cross it. I know that it has been Tkufus in the Ramban's era and, and other eras where... In the Gezeres Tachvatat, there were many who came out, and the result of that was Shabzai Tzvi, unfortunately. And there have been hundreds of times where, where Gedoli Yisrael or big people, Cheshwa people, said that the Mashiach was coming, and the results were pretty bad. So I don't even want to say it. But, but since I've gotten this far and presented how I'm, the, the pieces as I see them, okay, um, why did I say 20 years? I'll tell you what, the 20-year Cheshman is a very simple Cheshman. Uh, at Maimed Harsinai, excuse me, at Kriyas Yamsuf, there's a medrash that says, you know, it says that the one group was crying out to Hakadosh and one group was saying, "What do we do to fight the Mitzrayim?" And one group, right? And Matitzak Eli, the whole thing there. So there's a medrash in there that says that there were all the Yidden, no matter what they were doing, they knew that their Bishon was going to save them, even though it doesn't look that way from the Pesukim. But there's a medrash that says that they all knew that way, and that the different reactions that you see were different categories of reaction how they thought Hakadosh was going to bring the nice. Some of them thought it would be Badafka through Tefillah, some of them Badafka through Mohammed, some of them Badafka through this, some of that. But the Medrash then says that each of the Yidden there had a different plan of what he thought the Rebbe was going to do. Everyone, there were 600 different thousand different plans of how the Rebbe was going to save Kali Yisrael. And guess what? Not one of them thought of Kriyas Yamsuf as the way it happened. 
Nobody thought of that one. Right? So, to tell you that, right? We can think whatever we want, we can plan whatever we want. So I'm putting that al-Hakdama here to what I'm going to say next. Right? Obviously, the Russians got a much better plan than Kaganov will ever come up with. But, but Kaganov thought of the following, okay? And it's, you know, everything you see is definitely something that I believe. You know, the, all the pictures that I've told, put the, in front of you, is all pieces of information which show that there's something, it's not just another step. There's something unusual about this tkufa, at least in a few places here. There's something unusual going on in our tkufa. That that we need to to to, to, to that 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 the was talking to us, okay. But we have another unusual aspect, which is curious, very curious, okay. And it's and I'm going to talk political for a second, okay. Um, when Ben Gurion declared that the state of Israel would indeed be, you know, would exist, you know, in 1948, when there was a big whether they should or shouldn't, they weren't convinced that they would bring anything on themselves but a bloodbath. They weren't convinced that they could pull it off. So uh, Ben-Gurion decided to go ahead with it. So you can check it on the historians. There's a lot, lot written on the subject. You can read it up on. So Ben-Gurion decided to do it. Now, Ben-Gurion was the Mapai, Mapam, the that secular Zionist, the social Zionist. They were the strong part, labor Zionists. They were the strong parties. There was uh, the ones running everything were the, for the most part, those who didn't believe in the Nebuchadnezzar, and that's why there was a whole machlokus, whether to even mention, I mean, the, the United States Declaration of Independence mentions God, okay? Uh, one nation under God, right? Well, they don't say that anywhere. I don't think they say, they stopped saying that in the, in the uh, what's it called, pledge? Huh? So that's the Pledge of Allegiance. So, you know, the, the Declaration of Independence mentions God. The United States Declaration of Independence mentions God. Um, so the, um, the, there they had a homachokah, so they put it into the Declaration of Independence of the State of Israel, and they saw it on a compromise, they wrote, called it Sirius Row. Right? So those who believe in the Eibishta said, don't Sirius Row first, the Eibishta, and those who don't believe in the Eibishta could say Sirius Row, and they don't believe in the Eibishta. That's what Nascona was. That's why Nascona says Sirius Row. It doesn't say anything else. That's how it refers to whether or not you believe in the Eibishta. That was the compromise. Say Sirius Row, those who want it to be God will say it's God, those who don't want it to be God won't believe it's God, whatever. Mashiach. Uh, background is that Ben-Gurion, you know, yeah, he allowed a certain number of people to be learning. You know, he also allowed, there was, he, he, he partnered with the, what was called at the time, the United Religious Bloc. It was a good Mizrahi together formed because they weren't sure that they'd have enough votes for either one of them to get a vote, to get anything into the Knesset. And it was a much lower of the of a possibility of getting in in those days, and it is now. So they formed a party together, a common block together. Uh, you know what it is like today? Give you a simple muscle. If all the Frub people in Chutzlaritz would come to Eretz Yisrael, you would vote in a Frub prime minister, just by numbers of votes. Okay. Even assuming that the people in Chutzlaritz don't come to Eretz Israel right away, which I'm not judging whether people should or shouldn't. That's, you know, people have to make their own quickness, whether they should or shouldn't. But the Maise is, the demographics of the situation are such that the, the Yirida, which is people leaving Eretz Israel, much higher of Chilonim leaving Eretz Israel than, 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 than from, much higher percentage very high percentage of people who do their army service and then go for their year or two 
floating around the world and never return. There are more Israelis today in Los Angeles area than there are in Tel Aviv. There are probably as many in Miami area and in Las Vegas area as there are in Tel Aviv. Okay, but there are huge populations of Israelis in all three of those cities. Okay, there are not that many Haredim in those areas that are Israeli. And just as a hint, secret. Okay, um, the Aliyah of people moving to Eretz Israel is right now much, much higher among the firm world, with the exception of the French. In almost the, every other country of the world, the population that's moving to Eretz Israel now is predominantly from. Really, the French are coming is because they don't see that they have a future in France. So they're both from and non from are coming. Um, the, other, the birth rate, of course, among the from, both the Haredim and the what they call the Chardonikim, or the from Mizrahi world, is much, much higher than it is, right, among the non from world. And then you have the fact that a large percentage of the non from world doesn't get married anymore. So they don't get married, they don't have kids. So there's no, you know, so it's a combination of all those demographic factors. I don't think it's more than 20 years. Now, here's a play out, okay? This is my play out. I mean, this is one of 600,000 opinions. So, you know, what the Russian is actually going to do is, you know, his decision, and um, he's not, hasn't told me, not this week at least. So, um, it doesn't tell us clearly, right, how Mashiach is going to happen. It's very unclear. Ram says, don't try to figure it out. Well, not what happens, very unclear. So, what would happen if you suddenly had a very strong majority of from voters and from parties and you elected in a from prime minister, again, a from government, and you've already established under the current government, right, which I'm not going to comment on, but you probably, most of you probably have the same opinion I have. The difference is that I have to live under them and you don't. Um, but they've already established that once you've got 60 or 61 seats in the Knesset, you can do whatever you please and nobody can stop you. They've made that a precedent here now. That's exactly what they're doing. Okay, once you have, you don't have to have any plan, don't have any program, no ideas, just do it. If you can get away with it, do it. Okay? Well, hey folks, we could get rid of the Gats, that's the uh, Israeli Supreme Court, and get rid of them, which would be probably one of the greatest chesed anybody could do for mankind. Um, get rid of them, and and then create a from. Where did, it doesn't say anywhere that that can't be. I mean, uh, that was Herzog's idea when he created the tefillah from Medina Yisrael, which I'm sure you've all heard. And it says, Those words were written by Rav Herzog, okay, who was the Rav of Rashi in the in '48. Uh, he wrote those words. He believed in those words. He believed that that the Medina would become the Rashi Smichas Golosayno. Maybe he's right on that aspect. Maybe this is the way it's supposed to happen. I don't know, right? I'm just pointing out that there's a lot of indication here. So I want to close with one last idea, okay, which I think is Nagea to anybody who has a strong cashier in Talmud Torah. Are we ready for Mashiach? We keep saying we want Mashiach to come. We do it three times a day, maybe a lot more. At least three tefillahs a day we devote to it, and more than one tefillah in those three. It's more bracha in those tefillahs. Any of us ready for Mashiach? Really? Really? I'll give you a simple question. How many of you feel you are competent in the halachas of Tyrus? 
right? We should at least be as, as competent in the halachas of Tyrus as we are with the halachas of our kitchen or the halachas of Shabbos. If, we t- if, we, if we're putting our mouth where our mouth is, right? We're putting our mind where our mouth is, right? We should be spending time at least on knowing the halachas of Tyrus that are germane to us, at least have a basic rudimentary idea of what the halachas of Tyrus are as not only because we have to know this, but because we really want to show the Rebbe that when we say that we want Mashiach to come, right, we really want him to come now, not in 20 years. <coughs> so I am leaving that as a, as a proposal on the table, okay? You have a Murdasra here that can decide how much of it to, you know, how, how he wants to implement it or not at all, it's his, his decision. Um, but um, but anyway, that that is that is how I look at view at what I see putting together the halacha, the background, the hashkafa, and the current events, if you will, We're putting it into one picture. Um, this is how I see it, and I simply say that. I'm not just, you know, I really feel this way. And, and I'm not that type of a person in general. Those of you who know me well, I'm not this type of person in general. But I really feel that we are at a very a crux point in world history that we need to internalize. Thank you very much. I have.